0: Well, as I've uh, mentioned before, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was, uh, spent half of his vocation being a pastor and the other half of his vocation being a drug and alcohol therapist. And I think the way that he was able to hold these two things together is most of our church was made up of uh, his clients that were recovering with uh, drug and alcohol addiction. Um, and then my mom uh, spent uh, most of my life uh, working at a Christian homeless shelter as a, a social worker. Uh, so she was, you know, a, a case manager, uh, pastor, uh, chaplain—like one of those people that just kind of holds everything together. Yeah. You know? And yet, uh, despite like all of this, I—I um, I had like uh, I didn't have a whole lot of like intentional faith. Education, how about that like uh, we there, were, there was certainly a faith formation in the fact that like I spent my summers at the homeless shelter playing cards with people there and hearing their stories, but there wasn 't a, a whole lot of like formal education on like the things of faith like I knew that God loved me, uh, I knew that God wanted me to love other people, and that was about it and I, I recognize like that that 's a big thing for a lot of people right like if we could get more people who are following Jesus to like get to that place like we'd be good. But I, I, I just recognized like, I, I did have a rather simple faith. Um, like when it came to things like the Bible, uh, I didn't really know what it was. I knew it was the special thing. I didn't know how it worked. Um, I, I knew Jesus played some sort of important role in this whole thing, but wasn't quite sure how all that worked. Again, like, I just knew that God wanted me to love people, to help people. And uh, somewhere along the way, I felt this, this call to like, be a pastor, thinking that that would be the best way that I could like, love and help other people. And so I show up at at college with this sort of like simple faith and uh, I enter into like this sort of academic pursuit of faith and the Bible and theology and all of that, which is anything other than simple, yeah? Uh, And so um, in some ways it felt like we dropped like a Bible on like an examination table and we just kind of like poked around and like got reeled into it uh, to, to see how it works and what it is and what it's made up of and all of that. And this was a really, um, a really good but really challenging sort of experience for me. Uh, I, I felt like a lot of the assumptions that I had were being challenged. I felt like uh, I was being exposed to all sorts of new perspectives and ways of thinking and understanding. And it was a really good, growing, formative experience for me. But at the same time, uh, I had been introduced to this sort of like Christian subculture within my Christian college that I had never been exposed to before. And uh, at times, this Christian subculture and the things that I was learning in the classroom were almost at, like, direct odds with one another. (laughs) And I I felt very confused in this moment because most of, like, my peers, most of my colleagues did grow up in a church where they had things like Sunday school. Again, our church was filled with, like, recovering drug addicts and alcoholics. So, like, Sunday school for me wasn't a thing that was high on our priority. Um, And so, like these people knew the Bible in and out and knew it very well. And yet, like, what I was uh, observing from my experience in my classroom was the way that they were using isn't the way that the Bible works. (laughs) And so, like, I felt like they knew verses better than I did, but, like, I felt like I had a better sense on, like, what it was and how it worked. And I just felt so lost in that. And so for, like, the, the four or five years that I was on campus, it felt like so much of my time was spent just wrestling and grappling with all of these sorts of things, and I never felt like content with like the status quo or the easy sort of answers. And I remember one day talking to a friend, and I was talking about a particular author who was approaching some some topic from a very different way. And I was like, I just I can't I can't do the status quo thing. Like this is so compelling. Like it's so subversive, which was a word I tried to say a lot uh, in college. And my friend was like. Why can't you just be normal? <laughs> and for those of us who have like ever like wrestled with God, um, you know that like normal isn't really an option anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so for like these four or five years, uh, I felt like I felt alone. I felt isolated. Um, I felt misunderstood. And at times, I even felt like there was something wrong with my faith. Like, in some ways, it was, like, broken. And then I stumbled my way into the story from Genesis uh, chapter 32, and it, in many ways, felt like a lifeline for me, and shined a whole new light on, like, what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to walk in this life of faith, what it means to have this journey of faith. And so, uh, this is the story of, of Jacob uh, that comes in Genesis chapter 32, but before we get there, maybe it's helpful to, to back up a little bit. So uh, Jacob comes from a really important uh, line in the Old Testament. Um, He comes from the line of Abraham, who God gave this promise to that Abraham would have many uh, descendants, would make this great nation, would be a blessing to all the world. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob. But Isaac didn't just have Jacob. Uh, Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. And Esau was actually born first. And as uh, uh, Esau's coming out of the womb, they see something strange, and they see a hand grasping onto his heel, and it's Jacob, which means something quite literally like the heel grasper. (laughs) And this becomes Jacob's sort of posture in his life. He's always grasping at the heel of the person in front of him. He's always sort of like hustling and jockeying for position, like trying to like get to the place that isn't his. He's always playing second fiddle, but wishing that he was in first place, and so uh, because of this, like we get to a place in jacob and esau 's life where uh, jacob steals esau 's blessing and his birthright, which would be like even more monumental than stealing somebody 's inheritance to, uh, today and so esau who 's presented as this big burly, hairy, manly man, uh, kind of grunts because that 's what big burly hairy manly men do and threatens to kill jacob and jacob 's the opposite of jacob uh, of esau and so he he knows he doesn't stand a match in this fight, and so he takes off and flees to a new country. So he finds himself at his uh, uncle Laban's house, and over the course of 20 years gets duped into marrying two different women uh, who tend to happen to be his cousins. That's your classic love story, really. Um, and then uh, gets this call from God to head back to his homeland. Now, the problem in all of this, to get from Laban's land to his homeland, he must go through the territory that belongs to his brother Esau. And so Jacob doesn't know what's happened over the course of these 20 years. Yeah. Uh, has he forgotten about it? Has he given up on it? Or has that resentment grown and grown and grown? And so as he approaches uh, his brother's uh, territory, he sends um, uh, essentially like a delegation to say, hey, hey, we come in peace, but we're, we're coming. And we're told that Esau and like several hundred people get up to come and greet Jacob. And Jacob's like, oh no, my brother's going to kill me. <laughs> And so he sends wave and wave of people and sets up this line of how they're going to greet uh, Esau. And then finally we get to the night before when Jacob sends everybody across the river and Jacob camps out on the bank of the river all by himself. I don't see this as an act of cowardice. I see this as like, this is going to be a big day and he needs some space to prepare himself. And that's where we pick up our story. Genesis 32. We read, Jacob was left alone. And the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose up on him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. I love this story. Uh, uh, On the one hand, it's a, a story of wrestling. But on the other hand, it's a, a story about names. I mean, we, we see within this, this grappling, this wrestling back and forth, there isn't this sort of uh, dialogue of, like, give me your wallet, punk. But there's this dialogue of this interrogation about, like, what is your name? And for us in the 21st century, this feels very foreign. But for the ancients, like, this would have totally made sense. Because when it comes to names, like the name you have, or the name that you would give a child, it was so much more than just, like, what's in vogue for the day. Yeah? But to like give a name was to like speak to like somebody's essence or to speak to somebody's identity or to speak to like a, a certain level of fate that exists in their life. And so to ask somebody, like, tell me what is your name, you're saying more than just like, tell me who you are, but really like, tell me what you are. What are you about? And so you can imagine here, as Jacob's wrestling with what he first appeared, what first appeared to be a man and now appears to be God's very self, and God says, tell me your name. As Jacob is, is thinking about all that lies ahead, as he thinks about the 20 years of history between he and his brother, as he thinks about all of the ways that he tricked his brother, connived his brother, and then has spent his life living into that posture ever since, as he answers God and says, I'm Jacob... I'm the heel grabber. I'm the conniving little trickster. I'm the one who's always been jockeying for a position that was never mine. You get a sense of like resignation, don't you? Like, this is who I am. This is who I will always be. You get a sense of shame in Jacob's answer here. And I think this is the beauty of the story. Because in that moment, God says, you shall no longer be called Jacob. You'll be called Israel, the one who has wrestled with God. See, in that moment, um, the blessing that comes for Jacob is the sense of like a, a, new, a new name, a new essence, a new identity. And this newness is only made possible because he uh, had the audacity to wrestle with God. Now, Israel, uh, of course, is not just a person, but would eventually um, become a whole nation of people, uh, what we might call like the people of God. And so uh, the tradition goes that as people began to read this story, they read it not as just a story about a person, but about a people, the people of God, which means in some ways to like, be part of the people of God means to be part of a people who have the audacity to wrestle with God. As uh, scholar and commentator Miguel de la Torre notes, Jacob's encounter reveals a unique characteristic about the faith of the Bible. Surrounding religions unquestionably obey their gods. But the faith of the Bible is one where we can wrestle with our God in the hopes of discovering God's name, God's essence. See, the more that I've, I've sat with this story, or dare I say, the more that I've wrestled with the story, I've become. Uh, I've begun to realize that, like wrestling with God, isn't a problem for our faith. It's a paradigm for it. Wrestling with God isn't a problem. It's not a, a sign of a broken faith or a faith that's on the verge of apostasy. But wrestling with it is. It's a paradigm. In many ways, it's a sign, it's an evidence of, uh, of an honest pursuit of God. It's just part of the process of how we grow in this way of Jesus. And so rather than being surprised by it, rather than being scared of it, rather than being skeptical of it, maybe it's time that we like, embrace it and recognize, for, recognize it for what it is. A paradigm that's just part of the process. Uh, a few months ago, uh, the lighthouse uh, had a... Um, uh, a, a retreat weekend where we uh, spent some time looking at like um, strategic operations and planning. Now I know, like, about half of you just died in your pew hearing those words, but for me, like, I was really in, in, in interested in this. Like, I, I find those conversations to be really fascinating. And at one point in the weekend, our facilitator um, was talking about the, the growth patterns of um, programs and uh, organizations and institutions. He said, like, contrary to popular belief, also known as the American Dream, this is not how things grow. Sort of this unencumbered, just growth exponentially um, without any sort of hiccups along the way. But instead, he said that this tends to be the the growth pattern of how programs, organizations, and institutions grow. There's growth, there's plateau, and then there's taking a step back. Growth, plateau, take a step back. Growth, plateau, take a step back. I thought about this, and I was like, huh, I don't think that that's just programs and organizations and institutions. Like, I think that's like much of our lives, right? Um, so, for example, this past week, uh, Raya took her first steps, which was really, really exciting. Uh, and uh, prior to this point, like, she was like an o- Olympic-level uh, crawler. Like, you'd close your eyes and like boom, she's across the room, climbing up the stairs, terrifying to be her parent. Yeah. But now she's like, uh, less than an Olympic-level walker, which makes her very, very frustrated, right? Um, like, she takes a few steps, falls, and then she'll giggle, right? Takes a few steps, falls, giggles, and then takes a few steps, and then is just, like, downright angry because she can't do what she uh, used to be able to do. See, at one point, when she first learned to crawl, like, this was growing exponentially, right? But then she plateaued because, like, there's only so much you can do crawling, right? There's only so, mu- so many areas that you can get to, like, you're pretty limited in your mobility at this point. But for her to, like, reach the next level, she's going to have to walk. But for her to walk, she's got to take, figuratively, a step back so that she can, like, figure this out, right? To figure out this new skill so that she can begin to grow and explore the world in a whole new way. But there's certainly, like, a bit of a wrestling, right, in this taking a step back. It might even feel a bit like her hip gets popped out of socket, right, as she's trying to, like, get her feet from under her. But on the other side is a whole new world and a whole new way of experiencing this world. Or to put it another way, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned uh, I, Ali and I ran a half marathon in 2019. And so uh, part of the process was uh, throughout the week you had to run a couple, uh, two or three miles several times a week, and then on Saturdays I'd have my long run. And so uh, I got to the place where like, I felt good about my two to three mile pace. I was running like a 9.30 mile or 10 minute mile. again giraffe and quicksand. Like, that was good for me, yeah? Um, But then this thing would happen where on Saturdays, when I started running, like, five, six, seven miles, like, I couldn't keep up with that pace. Uh, I had to, like, step back to, like, an 11-minute mile um, so that I could, like, finish the race. And I felt really disappointed by this because, like, I was working so hard to, like, get my short run pace up that I had to, like, take this step back so that I could just finish my long runs. But something happened through this process, right? Like... Quickly, like, my two to three mile pace began to actually improve. And over time, like, my long run, I was able to, like, build up the pace so that I could actually run that faster. And I ended up running my half marathon in, like, a 10 minute or 10.30 mile pace. Again, giraffe and quicksand, I get that. But, like, I showed progress throughout the way. But it took, like, taking a step back so that I could, like, begin to grow and expand and evolve and get better along the way. And so as we think about this, and we say, like, okay, if this is true in programs, organizations, institutions, if this is true in just, like, about every area of our life, this growth plateau, take a step back, growth plateau, take a step back, growth plateau, take a step back, perhaps this is, like, true even within, like, our faith journey, within this thing that we call, like, our faith formation or our faith development. And so if this is true when it comes to our, our faith journey, our faith formation, our faith development, then perhaps what we need is some like, helpful language to wrap our minds around what it is that's happening in this faith journey. Uh, there's a, a biblical scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, which by the way, if your name is Walter Brueggemann, you have one career option, right? And that is to be a biblical scholar, yeah? And uh, his particular area of expertise is uh, the Old Testament or what we might call like, the Hebrew Bible. And so he spent some time uh, reflecting upon the Psalms. And he noticed within the Psalms, there tend to be sort of like these three movements. Um, there's this, this movement where like everything is great. Everything's hunky-dory. Like everything makes sense. Everything's going according to plan. And then there's another movement where like everything gets blown to pieces. Nothing makes sense. Everything's terrible. Everything's rotten. And then there's a third movement where like the pieces are being put back together. Um, Things are, things are making sense once again, and there's a goodness, there's a blessing on the other side of that. He calls these three movements orientation, disorientation, reorientation. So there's psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, psalms of reorientation. And as he talks about it, he says, you know, the, the psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, which seems to encompass so much of our life of faith. And so maybe these aren't just psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, or psalms of reorientation, but perhaps we all have seasons of our life of orientation where everything seems hunky-dory, where everything just makes sense. And perhaps we have seasons of disorientation where everything seems to be blown to smithereens, where nothing makes sense, where we can't quite move on the way that we once did. And perhaps we have seasons of reorientation when the pieces of all of this that has been broken and blown to smithereens are being put back together and we're seeing things in a whole new light. Uh, as I think about my own life, like this, this sort of pattern and rhythm makes an awful lot of sense. I think I spent much of my uh, early life in this state of orientation. like Everything's hunky-dory. Like I love God, I love people, and like everything will work out for me. And then sort of like the first domino fell, and that was like the death of my parents. Where it was kind of like a, oh, maybe things don't work out the way that I think that they do. And then the second domino fell when I got to college, and I began to realize, like, there's a whole lot more complexity to this than this simple faith that I had. And so for like the next four or five years, I found myself in this place of disorientation, sort of just kind of stammering around, trying to figure out what it is that I believe, and how to like... Walk through this life, and then on the other side of that, I finally began to like put the pieces back together, and catch this like these two pieces—the death of my parents and this like wrestling with my faith—like actually began to like mutually interpret one another, and they began to like help make sense of the other, and I began to put back a faith that was stronger and I think better and more beautiful and more spacious than the one that I had on the other side, and over time, then this this, this reorientation. Began to just be my normal way of being. A way of orientation, if you will. And that lasted good up until about, oh, 2020? <laughs> when something happened, lots of things happened, right? And all of that just kind of got blown to smithereens, right? And so, like, I'll be honest. Like, I, I find myself uh, in a place of kind of disorientation, as I'm sure many of us are, um, I'm asking new questions that I wasn't asking before that, right? Uh, and to be transparent, like as I'm thinking about a major transition in my own life, like I'm asking different questions and thinking about things in a different way. And so I find myself in this space of disorientation where I'm trying to like piece all of this together. But here's the difference about it this time around. I know it's normal. <laughs> I know it's something to expect. And I don't feel like my faith is on the verge of falling apart, and I don't feel like I'm on the verge of slipping into apostasy or something uh, uh, crazy like that. I know it's just part of the process. I know it's the paradigm of the faith that we have, and I know that eventually like, we'll, I'll get to this place of reorientation where all of this then starts to make sense in some sort of way, and I can begin to move on past it and see life and God and um, faith in a a new sort of light, and so I guess my point of all of this is like, for those of us who find ourselves in a place of disorientation, of wrestling, of grappling with our faith, like, don't freak out. <laughs> uh, I don't think we have to be surprised by it either, and I don't think we have to be on like threat level midnight level of like concern about it. Yeah, um, because it's it's just it's part of the pro- or it's just part of the process. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I think that this is why uh, this phrase uh, deconstruction is such a buzzword right now. Because many of us were never taught to expect this, right? We were never taught to expect to to question or grapple or wrestle with our faith. We were never taught that doubt is just a natural part of this journey of faith. And so when those questions come up, it feels very scary. And we feel like we, uh, in some way, have to hide it. So my friends, like, please hear this. Like, if you're wrestling with your faith, if you're grappling with your faith, if you have questions, if you have doubts, like... That's okay. <laughs> that's not a sign of a problem of your faith. It's, it's a part of it. It's a paradigm for it. And so if you are wrestling, like, please like, do it. <laughs> but do not do it alone. Uh, see, when, when wrestling with our faith is a problem, then we have to keep it under wraps. We can't tell anybody about it. We have to do it in isolation. And then that's when things like shame begin to grow and we feel so isolated and so removed from our community but if it's not a problem, if it's actually a paradigm, if it's just part of our faith, then you can ask your questions because it's like, yeah, I've asked that question too, right? <laughs> you can ask those questions because like, that doesn't mean you're on the verge of apostasy. It means you're on the, the, the verge of like, receiving a blessing from God of this moment of new orientation. So ask your questions. Don't do it lo- alone. Ask people who they read. What sort of podcasts were they listening to? What sort of practices have they inherited now that help them make sense of this faith? My friends, wrestling with faith uh, or wrestling with God isn't a problem for our faith. It's a it's a paradigm for it. So wrestle. But may you know that in that process, it may feel like your hip gets dislocated. <laughs> it may feel like a disorientation. It may feel like you're stammering around for a while. But know that on the other side, there's a blessing from God's very self that looks like something like a reorientation where we begin to understand and experience and encounter God in a whole new way. Amen.